But he's our third child. He's our youngest. And uh, Jonathan went to uh, and graduated from Moody Bible Institute in Chicago and worked in business a couple years up in Milwaukee and worked with a church plan up there. And it was in that setting that he felt uh, a real call to the pastoral ministry. And uh, if that'd be the case, then he thought, I better go to seminary. And that caused him to move from Milwaukee, cold Milwaukee, down to North Carolina, which he greatly loves, North Carolina, the Raleigh-Durham area. And uh, he's uh, finishing his second year in graduate studies. It's a three-year full-time program, Master of Divinity. And uh, he's presently uh, uh, taking a full-time load. Uh, as well as uh, an intern in his, his church. He's in his second year doing that at Summit Church, quite a great growth church down in the Raleigh-Durham area. And, uh, and so he's learning a ton there uh, as well. Andrea's uh, in her second year at the seminary as well. She's in the uh, biblical counseling program, and she hails from Raleigh-Durham. That's her home. Mom and dad live down there and so on. So John, they come. We're looking forward to the things that God has laid on your heart as you open the Word. And let's welcome them. Hello? Hello? There we go. <laughs> okay. Uh, if you can, uh, turn your Bibles with me to Galatians 6, 1 to 5. is going to be our passage here today. I'm going to start off with the reading of God's Word. <clears throat> All right, I'll, I'll read while you guys are turning. Uh, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watching yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone, and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load." Now, there's no, there's no secret in society in the last, I don't know, several hundred years, several thousand years, that the church has gotten a bad rap for being hypocritical. Um, it's a couple hundred years ago, there's a book produced by Nathaniel Hawthorne, The Scarlet Letter. Uh, probably a lot of people here, if not everyone, has read it in literature class. A woman has an affair outside of wedlock, um, has a baby, and they make her... Uh, so a, a red letter A on her clothing to be reminded that she's an adulteress. Uh, more recently, there was a movie called Saved that came out uh, several years ago, which is kind of an updated version of that. And then even now, there's a, a new TV show that's come up that's very popular. Uh, GCB is the acronym, or is the letters, and it stands for Good Christian, and then there's an expletive for uh, uh, women. Um, but it, what it refers to is ladies in the church who are hypocritical, two-faced. They use um, prayer time as a way to slander and gossip each other, and it's pretty much like Orange County housewives for the church. And that's the way that the, 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 that the culture views the church is hypocritical and two-faced 
and not really loving. Not certainly not unified. And and there's a lot of good merit for it. Um, most of the churches are like that. Many people in society have run into circumstances and situations that seem to be like that. Certainly many people are agnostic today and, and not in the church because of Christians in the church. And what do we deal with people who have sinned within the church? And Paul here addresses that in Galatians 6. Well, let's take a look at this. Galatians 6, 1. Let's take a look at the first clause. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, and it's pretty telling. First of all, he dresses them as brothers. This is inside the arena. It's to be pertained towards, um, but let's say if I was Paul, I'd be talking to you. If any one of you is caught in transgression, there's two things that are telling about this clause. If anyone is caught, the idea is, is to be entrapped. It's the passive voice. I know it's early in the morning. If anyone is a grammarian, you know that the passive voice signifies an action being done to the subject. It's not Steve threw the baseball, the baseball threw Steve. Um, so it, it, a lot of people see the person in sin, the adulteress, the stealer, the thief, whatever overt sin there is, as being an, a major act of cancerous cell within the church. But Paul says, no, that's not the way you view someone in sin. Instead, it's a brother of Christ who's been overtaken they, it's passive. The sin has overrun their life. What that does is it humanizes them to the congregation. They're no longer this big monster. They're no longer this big cancerous cell who could destroy the church. But it shows our apparent weakness and need to be reminded of the gospel. To be overtaken shows us our limitation when we are not living in the spirit. To give into a sin and pursue anything but the gospel is a sign that we worship the creation more than the creator. And we should be pitied not seen as a vile threat. It reminds me of 2 Corinthians 12, 9, when Paul writes, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. The idea here is that when someone is sinning, in a, let's say in a major overt sin, that they're not this big cancerous cell, but Paul says they've been overtaken. They, they've sold their, their heavenly um, righteousness for something far less. To be pitied, that they're so insecure that they would desire something like that. The second observation from that clause is the, the use of transgression. You know, the, the better translation would actually be false step. Paul sees it as a false step, not a final state of affairs. You know, it, just like in the Scarlet Letter, the problem with that book is that the community takes her, her single action of having an affair and then forever deems her as an adulteress. But the, the terminology here is that Paul sees them as believers on along the journey of being sanctified, not to be forever um, vilified by their sin. Um, the idea that is in Galatians 5, it says, walk in the Spirit. The, all of Galatians is about walking, walking in the Spirit. It's this idea that Christianity is more of a mountain-like trek than it is ascending in a hot air balloon. Once you get saved, you're not just going vertical in sanctification. Um, oftentimes, to get to the view at the top of a mountain, hikers will roll ankles, take breaks, trip, etc. The point is that it's not that they trip or false step, but that they reach the top of the mountain that the Spirit is taking them to. 
Paul sees the sinner as a sanctified trekker that will be holy, not one that had promise and now is a failure who is marred by sidesteps, but instead a hiker that sidesteps less and less the more trained he is at hiking. The first idea of restoring people within the church is that, one, we see their apparent weakness. The second we see is that they're not defined by their sin. They're mere sidesteps. They're missteps along the journey of being sanctified and being made into Christ. Now, this is the easy part. We take a look at this and we say, well, okay, we as a church can forgive people who are in overt sins, adultery, stealing a car, you know, murdering. Some, maybe we could get over someone who's murdering so long as they ask for forgiveness. But there's two major responses to how someone is in sin. There's a Pharisaic approach and there's a libertarian approach. Now, the Pharisaic approach was made popular by its condescending and hypocritical practice that the media has bashed for years, such as the recent TV show GCB. Now, to these individuals, the church is a social club of religious people. Now, what claims Jesus as Lord, uh, behavior modification is the key to the game. This group is often left asking the question, well, are they still sinning? You know, when confronted with someone who is in sin in the church, they are harsh, judgmental, and speak about morality in America and the need for morality to be restored in the church. These people see the problem in America and the problem in the church as a morality issue. Well, if people would just be more dressed up on Sundays, well, if people would just sing on Sundays, well, if people would just, our church would be a better place. Well, if people would, in America, if we just had a more moral America, we'd be a much better place. And while morality is good, bad morality with bad motives, or good morality with bad motives is worse than bad morality with bad motives. Because you're self-deceived. And morality while morality is important, the motivation for morality makes the difference. They approach the disciplines of Bible study, prayer, and giving from the standpoint that by doing so, they are making God happy. And likewise, they have little time for those who can't stay on the path, as they do or their friends do. They love to discuss people's sins privately and openly as a way to justify their own self-righteousness. And this is called the Pharisaical way because this is what the Pharisees did in the first century. They cared more about the letter of the law and pleasing God with their actions than the hearts of those that were around them. Think about it. They presented a woman who was an adulteress to Jesus, an adulterer to Jesus, to be stoned. There's no greater way that they couldn't bear one another's burdens than the fact that a woman's caught in adultery and they take her to Jesus to stone her. Jesus writes in the ground and then says, he who is within, without sin cast the first stone and they all walk away. But that practice is still going on in the church today. See, in the American church, these people exist as people who use Jesus as the same way the Pharisees use the law. They use his words to condemn and judge rather than to know him. They seek to restore the Christian brother in Galatians 6.1, but can't accept them until restoration is completed. Well, then that person stops sinning and is finally restored and respectable. Then, then I can trust them and then I care about them. No, there's another approach, and the other is the libertarian Christian. This, this practice is extremely in vogue today and as, as a reaction to the pharisaical approach. These Christians go to church together, they worship together, but have no confession of sin because it's a private matter. Fear of sounding judgmental. They don't ask about brother or sister's Christ or their walk in Christ. They think each other will end up in heaven, and they have no business knowing the business of another. 
And while they are more accepting of the person in Galatians 6.1, who is in sin, they never restore one in sin because each Christian is an island. This is both popular now as Americans, but was very popular in the early church in Galatia. And both approaches are inherently prideful for two different reasons. The Pharisaical approach seeks to restore the Christian to make them feel better. You know, it's like, well, come here, I'll restore you. Come on, I got you. And, or, or to keep the Christian far away to maintain the Christian life, not requiring work from another. All right, just keep them far away because I don't want to do the work it requires to help that Christian brother. The libertarian approach, likewise, is prideful in that they believe the approach, um, it, it consumes time. I don't, I don't want to help them, and I certainly don't want to destroy my worldview about myself. So I'll keep someone far away so that if they get close, they could destroy my happy notion I have about myself. But if we look at Galatians 6.1 beyond what we just read, it says, You who are spiritual should restore that one in a spirit of gentleness, though watch yourself that you too may be tempted. Now, many incorrectly teach this as being more mature Christians, less mature Christians. I've seen this before saying, well, when you get sanctified and you become more mature, look, there's obviously a second rate, higher rate. But that's not the idea here. And all of Galatians, you know, walking in the spirit, living in the spirit, the idea is, is everyone in the church is one that is spiritual. If the Holy Spirit lives within you, you are spiritual. The, re the responsibility Paul gives here of a collective community is to everybody, not to the pastoral staff, not to the elders, but to everybody. You know, to oppose the libertarian viewpoint, all believers are to be actively restoring and discipling each other. There are no spiritual giants in the church who are incapable of falling. <laughs> Just look at David and Bathsheba. Peter in Galatians 2 decides to leave the fellowship of Gentiles to go hang out with Jews. Peter and David were certainly spiritual giants, but not above spiritual discipleship. And to go against the Pharisees, Paul writes that the restoration process is to be done in a spirit of gentleness. Notice that not many Pharisees, or that many Pharisees excel at a lot of things, but gentleness is not one of them. You know, they may be great at the hard disciplines and patience may be difficult, but amidst patience, they are not gentle. And we just, in Galatians 5, it talks about the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is a love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Understand, though, it's a fruit of the Spirit. It's a funny thing. You either have all the fruit or you have none of the fruit. All of them are to be growing or you have none of them. You know, the sign of the Spirit working in your life is that they are all excelling at the same time. Now, that doesn't mean you're always the most patient person, kindest person, good person, faithful person, gentle but it does mean you're only as mature as your weakest fruit. All the others are just natural giftings, personality. You know, you might say, well, you know, I'm a joyful person and I have peace, but you're not self-controlled. Well, the truth is, if you have no self-control, that's a sign that the Spirit isn't really there because they'd all be growing. And so the idea here is, what Paul is saying is someone who is filled with the Spirit needs to go and gently, in the Spirit, restore one another. And everyone in the church is to be walking in the Spirit. It's not the pastor's job to go up. Church discipline has taken such a bad rap because it's this idea that, 
one person goes before and says, we've kicked this person out and they were living in sin. But the idea of church discipline is a daily process amongst all believers. Paul's very clear about that right here. It's not a, a, this two and three going and then it's a long process while someone gets cut out of the community like they're Mennonite or Amish. It's daily discipleship by all believers. Sharing. Now, look at the focus of the text. Paul starts with someone who is in a trespass. But that's not the point of the passage. The point of the passage is the congregation around the sinner. Paul's stern warning is not against the one in sin, but against the family of God. Their response to sin is crucial and more telling of the health and longevity of the church rather than an overt sin. Notice there, the, the, the warning is not at all against the overt sinner. The warning is against the people around the sinner. Too often within the church, people point the finger at the sinner and believe it. He is the problem with the health of the church. But remember, the gospel is made perfect in weakness, not in pride. In Galatians 6.2, Paul tells the church to carry the burden of the sinner. This is a sign of love. The approach to both the libertine and Pharisee See the sinner as the burden and not the sin as the burden. Let me repeat that again. Every other approach that's not gospel-centered sees the sinner as the burden and not the sin in the sinner's life as the burden. You know, and it, it reminds me of, of you know, I was the youngest, and uh, as my dad said, but it reminds me a lot of times I needed a lot of looking after and uh, not to put either sibling on the spot. Um, We'll put David on the spot since he's not here. <laughs> no, I won't because this isn't a favorable uh, illustration. But, um, but it reminds me of, of the situation of a father telling an older, older sibling to look after a younger sibling. And what does the older sibling do? He, he cries out, but dad, he's annoying. I don't want to look after him. And then when, certainly when the parent leaves, the younger sibling's going to get it. Oh, man, if you were just more mature, if you could have just been, why can't you look after yourself? But it's exactly the same way we respond to a Christian in sin. It's the same way we respond to someone who's struggling with a sin. Our Father has asked us to look after each other. And like Cain, we say, are we my brother's keeper? The health of the church rests on the believer's pride in the church. If the believers around the sinner see him as a burden, they too don't understand the gospel. And what's worse is that they are less likely to grow because of self-deception. Whereas at least the sinner in 6.1 has a chance because their, their pride's destroyed. And at least they might start to look up. You know, in 6.2, Paul writes that bearing one another's burden, we fulfill the law of Christ. And the law of Christ is the gospel. That's what that means. The point of restoring in gentleness is to show the believer and those in the community the gospel. That's the point of all the restoration process. That's the point of unity. That's the idea of community is to show the gospel. The gospel is always the point of everything. And the irony is this, every believer must see themselves as a believer trekking a mountainous terrain likely to be overtaken. The only lantern we have to stay on the path in the dark is the gospel, which we proclaim to each other. When we see each other as brothers and sisters with private relationships as the libertarians or the Pharisees see each other, then Satan will destroy the church. No doubt about it. 
Pride will destroy the church. See, Satan loves to divide and conquer. It's the way he worked all through history. Shouldn't be a surprise he's working that way today. Bonhoeffer writes, Diedrich Bonhoeffer writes in his book, Life Together, in confession, breakthrough to community takes place. Sin demands to have man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. And the more deeply he becomes involved in it, the more, da- the more disastrous is his isolation. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. In the darkness of the unexpressed, it poisons the whole being of a person. This can happen even in the midst of a pious community. In confession, the light of the gospel breaks into the darkness and seclusion of the heart. Since the confession of sin is made in the presence of a Christian brother, the last stronghold of self-justification is abandoned. The sin surrenders. He gives up all his evil. He gives his heart to God and he finds the forgiveness of all his sin in the fellowship of Jesus Christ and his brother. The, the expressed acknowledged sin has lost all its power. It has been revealed and judged as sin and it can no longer tear the fellowship asunder. Pride breaks the church. And people can't confess sin to each other as long as there's pride. Bonhoeffer says, the problem is people come in here to all churches and they're more, they more care about how they're perceived to each other rather than coming alongside each other and building each other up in the gospel. And when you have confession to one another, you literally, when we don't, we all live in, when we live in islands, we have this sin uh, idea, our imagination is fraught with sin. And we imagine things the way our sinful desires play out. Um, we imagine having a nice house. We imagine having a great marriage. We imagine, well, those might be nice things, but it's really like, your sin desire on steroids. And we don't think of that a lot of times, their imagination being extremely sinful because they're, they're not godly desires. Well, when we don't talk out what our imagination or our, our thoughts are to each other, it'll destroy us. And when we talk them out, we immediately see how stupid they are and selfish they are. And we immediately see ourselves as humiliated. And when a Christian brother reminds us of the gospel, it immu- immediately binds us together as brothers and sisters in Christ. The point of the church is not to be prideful of what we can do. That destroyed the Pharisees. Pharisees never got together to confess sin unless it was to see how awesome they were. Never, the point was never about the Jesus Christ who in his accomplished death and resurrection paid the price for us. The libertine idea of Christianity cannot work as the gospel is jettisoned and there is no true community. Pride runs rampant and sin wins, dividing and conquering everyone. Likewise, the Pharisees lose because the cross is the only way to freedom and amidst sin, instead of gentleness and carrying the burden of another brother, they sin, they show harshness. Amidst the, the challenge to be neither libertine nor Pharisee, Paul submits the challenge, for if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. That's Galatians 6.3. You may think you are a loving person because it is easy for you to love your children or love your wife or give or attend church. 
But Paul challenges the church in Galatia. You, know, you may think you know the gospel, but if you did, you would confess your sins to each other daily and gently remind each other of the cross. In Galatians 6.3, Paul tells us to test whether we even know the gospel. And a great test is how we respond within the community. Jonathan Edwards writes in Religious Affections, the things of greatest value are the things most often counterfeit. That's the gospel. Religiosity is so counterfeit all the time that simply thinking you know the gospel is not enough. Satan loves to lie, have us lie to ourselves to think we're Christians when we're really not. I, I think of the time when I was in sixth grade, we took a field trip to Washington, D.C., and uh, I wanted to have a nice watch. I couldn't afford a nice watch, so I did anything any middle school kid would do. Me and two of my buddies met a, a businessman who worked out of a backpack on the D.C. mall, and he sold me a fake Tag Heuer watch for 20 bucks. And I, I wouldn't buy a fake uh, Timex Iron Man for 20 bucks. I want a thing that's perceived value is high, and I'll take a counterfeit of it. That's the way Satan works. Satan will counterfeit thousands of lies that seem like the gospel, but, but are really straight from hell. So the idea is the Pharisees think they know the gospel and the libertarians think they know the gospel, but neither really know the gospel and destroy each other. And so there's a great value in testing whether you know the gospel. And Paul's telling us this is how you test. He, st he stresses the importance of testing rightly in 6.4. When most think, uh, okay, okay, how good am I? We, we grade on a curve based on other people within the church. We think of the worst people in the church and think, well, I have more patience than that guy, or I'm not judgmental like him, or at least I sing the songs where those people don't. And if you don't find yourself saying these, and if you find yourself saying these things, are you responding like a Pharisee or someone who recognizes they, they themselves have shortcomings just as much as you do, may be caught in trespass and need the gentleness of the gospel? Now, if you find that you're responding like a Pharisee, it's duly convicting. Because if you are judgmental, chances are people in the room are judging themselves based on how they're not like you. If you can run down a list of people in this church who aren't perfect, you certainly aren't living in grace or are certainly not gentle, and there can, they're can certainly not be joy in your life. People know that and are thinking, well, at least I have more joy than that person. can't judge on a curve. God doesn't. But we do it believing a lie of Satan that, well, we're better than that person. But compared to Christ, we're nothing. None of us. So how do we move this church into a community that is ridden of pride and division? Alan Bloom writes in The Closing of the American Mind, uh, the task is equivalent to squaring a circle because everyone loves himself most but wants others to love him more than they love themselves. In the absence of a common good or common object, the disintegration of society into particular wills is inevitable. Selfishness, in this case, is not a moral vice or a sin, but a natural necessity. The me generation and narcissism are merely descriptions, not causes. What he's saying is, 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 is he speaking to America, not the church, is that if there's no common larger arch principle to which everyone subscribes to, narcissism and the me generation in America are inevitable because everyone sees themselves as their own gods. 
It can't be anything. If you destroy nationalism, religion, and everything in America, then everyone has to look to themselves for their own happiness. It's inevitable. And you can't blame people for that. So the me generation and narcissism are merely descriptions, not causes, for the fact that we've destroyed every overarching principle in America. And the reasons why the libertarian and the Pharisaic people have zero patience and gentleness with each other, but excel in personal pride and destroy each other for personal preference, is that believers live like there is no overarching principle that informs their lives. Without something to inform how they treat each other's or treat each other, the churches will split over things like worship, methodology, and the stupidest things like, you know, worship, where the piano should go. This leads us to John 15, which I think really should inform the way we treat each other. Jesus says, this is my greatest commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for servants uh, does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all that I have heard from the Father I have made known to you. Jesus commands each of us to love each other as he has loved us. This is not some mild, superficial form of love. Many scholars today see Jesus as, uh, as love because he hung out with tax collectors and sinners and he just didn't judge them. But that's really selling Jesus short. You know, because he goes on to say, the ultimate form of love is not imitating my generosity in giving loaves of bread or healing, but in laying down one's life for another. He says, no greater love that for one, than for one to lay down his life for his friends. And then he foreshadows the cross by saying, his greatest act of love by calling his audience friends in the next verse. Christianity's overarching principle is that we are saved by a Savior who didn't just take care of the poor or love on the broken, but instead, like the loving father and the prodigal son, he ran out to the Pharisaical brother and died for him as well. This is the truth of Christianity when we marvel at our loving Savior at the cross and worship him knowing that we held the hammer that put him there. We unite as believers finding all other stuff in the church minor compared to proclaiming his name. And certainly divisions have no place in this narrative. At what point do divisions play? Again, they only exist because they're not under the overarching principle of the cross. And if you're not under the cross, then expect selfishness, as Bloom so eloquently described it. C.S. Lewis writes in The Great Divorce that the Christian life, when we are growing in Christ, we become less and less focused on ourselves and our perceived needs. Like Jesus who willingly and consciously sacrificed his greatest offering, his life. We care little for ourselves when our identity is more wrapped up in Jesus Christ. The more and more you concern yourself with yourself and your needs, the closer to hell you are. The more you worship at the cross, the more you carry burdens joyfully and don't even realize you're doing it goes with the, the maxim of the great divorce. It is greater to reign in hell than serve in heaven. Jesus Christ was the ultimate Galatians 6 Christian. While you were lost in the wilderness, trekking along, he carried your burden on his back in the form of a cross. 
And while you may be embarrassed to shed your pride in the church and confess your sins to a brother, he was stripped naked for all scoffers to see him. How vulnerable a position is that? The son of God naked and made a spectacle by the way he died. And you can't carry a brother's burden? Would you have also stood at the cross and laughed as your savior was willingly mocked, beaten, dying for you? Who are you to think that personal preference trumps the unity of the believers? Do you think Calvary was mere literature or a myth? You have to. Pride will destroy the church. The only way to overcome pride and restore everyone as believers on a daily level is, or daily reminders, to remind each other of the Savior on a cross and your complete inability to carry your own burdens unless he first carried it for you. And now the great conundrum of Galatians 6.5. For each will have to bear, or bear his own load. How can I carry my, another burden then be judged according to my own? The answer is by standing at the cross, we invariably grow to carry each other to the cross. And in doing so, the Father judges us as pure by the grace of this first sacrifice, his son. You see, we first have to notice that Jesus Christ carried our burden. And then when we stop caring less and less about ourselves and care about the other person, we were judged accordingly to, to having the gospel in our lives. Ladies and gentlemen, the, the church is made up of individuals. This is an opportunity to show whether some or anyone knows the real gospel. 2 Corinthians 12 says that in weakness, the gospel is proclaimed. That's why I'm leery of those who think we can make the perfect church or desire the perfect church. Ladies and gentlemen, there, there is no perfect church. If the idea is the perfect church is that it has no fighting, quarrels, division, greed, then you've either died and are standing before Jesus worshiping in a white robe, or sin has gone so underground, it's a graveyard and no one knows it. Real community is dirty. It's painful and it's tiring. But Christ was made dirty. He was pained. And he was tired, hanging on a cross so that we could be united with him like he was with his father. And we can be with each other. The idea is that we are all Galatians 6.1 people. We can all be overtaken by any sin at any time. And the idea is, and it's just adulterers, stealing, murderers. It's daily self-righteousness that overtakes us and destroys us in a manifestation of pride. But seeing each other daily as weak people who need a Savior will restore a community and unite us with Him. It's the only hope. It's the only way. The community wants to destroy the church. Media wants to destroy us. We've got to constantly be testing whether we are aligned with Jesus Christ or the church is really about ourselves. pray. Dear only Father, Lord, I, I thank you for your, your son who came and was able to unite man with man because he united us with you. Lord, we are constantly choosing ourselves and our enmity with 
with everyone around us because we want to be our own gods. And then we think very highly of ourselves when every so often we're gentle or give or are kind. But yet we go deeper within ourselves unless you come along and destroy our self-image and give us an opportunity to, real find, to really find fulfillment at the cross. Lord, I pray that uh, Grace Community Church be a, be a united church that is founded on the gospel, that there's a level playing field below the cross, that no one is this giant, adulterous sinner, but all of us are constantly, constantly fighting pride and self-righteousness. Lord, I pray that there be a spirit of gentleness and joy and real graciousness here. In Jesus' name, amen.